Yes, please. Lots of salt, please. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, but mm, I love a bit of salt on my fish and chips, and vinegar, of course. Now, salt and seafood go hand in hand, perhaps because, well, they're both from the ocean. By some estimates, if all the salt in the ocean could be removed and spread evenly over the Earth's land surface, it would form a layer more than 166 metres thick. That's about the height of a 40-storey building. It's a lot of salt, and it's what I'm looking at in this podcast. I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. In addition to seasoning my fish and chips, the ocean saltiness, or salinity, plays another key role. It's a main driver of the physical processes in the oceans. A saltier water is more dense, and that will start driving ocean currents in certain ways. Critters like different saltiness of different waters, so you'll find different critters and different saltiness. So it's a very rudimentary and very um, important parameter in this ocean to study. Liesl Hotelling is based at the College of Marine Sciences, University of South Florida. With salinity such an active driver in ocean behaviour, it's important that the public understands that it's not just about shake to taste. But then it also makes a very nice transition into reaching out to the public, because it is a... It is a parameter, if you will, that the public can understand very easily. They understand salty, they understand not salty, so it's a very easy way to to kind of coax them into learning about the data. And there's plenty of that. Like a toddler liberating crabs from a rock pool, oceanographers are collecting buckets and buckets of data on salinity. They can now even taste the sea saltiness from a great distance. We launched the Aquarius satellite last June to measure salinity from space. That's Eric Lindstrom, Physical Oceanography Program Manager at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. I sat down with Eric at a recent oceanography conference in London to hear more about Aquarius. How does it measure salinity from space? Salinity is normally measured from a ship. We uh, measure the conductivity of seawater. Well, we can get an estimate of the conductivity of the seawater from space. As the conductivity changes, the microwave emissions change, and we put a very sensitive radiometer in space that measures the microwave emissions from the sea surface, and we can back that out into uh, a salinity estimate. It's very uh, daunting uh, remote sensing measurement. Uh, it's a, we have to have a very sensitive radiometer and we have all sorts of conflicting uh, issues, the roughness of the surface, the temperature of the surface, the galactic background radiation. Aquarius is up there producing all this data. Who is using that data and for what purpose? At the moment, it's just being used by uh, salinity scientists trying to understand the measurement itself. It's not quite ready for prime time yet, but uh, the reason it's flying is to understand the water cycle on the planet, among other things. In this uh, warming world that we have, the ocean is warming, the atmosphere is warming, uh, there's uh, the idea that the water cycle on the planet will accelerate. There'll be more moisture in the atmosphere, more precipitation, more cycling of water through the system. And um, 
the ocean can be kind of a, a integrating gauge for that. Uh, changes in salinity can indicate uh, changes in uh, uh, evaporation and precipitation over the ocean. In fact, uh, uh, if you look back over all the measurements that have been made from ships over the last 50 years and you map the, the changes in salinity, you actually find that uh, most of the saltier places in the ocean surface have, have gotten saltier and the fresher places have gotten fresher, which is exactly the fingerprint that you would think to see in an acceleration of the water cycle. So Aquarius is coming along as uh, ocean scientists are trying to diagnose uh, if this is really true, that there is an acceleration. We have to, uh, like a doctor doing a diagnostics on a human, we have to rule out other diseases. So what we're trying to do with salinity here is uh, rule out that it's not ocean processes fooling us to make it look like an acceleration of the water cycle. As Eric said, because Aquarius is not even one year into its new job tasting salt from orbit, the little satellite isn't ready for prime time yet. Scientists around the world who are working with NASA to calibrate the data before they can start to use it properly for research purposes are due to meet in Buenos Aires in April when they'll decide how to start releasing the data. The wait is only heightening oceanographers' enthusiasm. That's just really exciting. It's pretty cool. It's quite amazing. One reason why the sea dogs are so excited is because data on salinity can feed into research on another phenomenon that is affecting many residents of the ocean, including one of our favorite seafoods. Do you like to eat oysters? Yes, very much. So we have an issue on the west coast of the United States that all of a sudden, uh, you know, as we're, we raise the oysters and we have the, the larval, they weren't setting on the oysters, and, and we had no idea why. In 2005, we lost almost 80% of our crop. And as it turned out, it's because the water had changed. The chemistry of the water became more acidic. That's Zdenka Willis, who isn't trying to put us off oysters. On the contrary, Zdenka is the director of the Integrated Ocean Observing System, or IUS, a U.S. agency that is part of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, the NASA of the oceans. Zdenka's agency, IUS, collates data on the oceans to help scientists, officials, residents and business people improve safety, grow the economy and protect the environment. So, she wants oysters and other ocean dwellers not to be threatened by acidification. Now, I may like a splash of acetic acid, vinegar, on my fish and chips, but acid in the ocean is another matter altogether. Yum. About one quarter of the carbon dioxide we pump into the atmosphere is absorbed by the oceans. This leads to chemical reactions that make seawater more acidic, which, among other things, makes it difficult for all sorts of sea critters to grow their shells. This is what was happening into the oysters on the west coast of the United States when IU scientists stepped in. 
as we started to have this dialogue with our oyster growers, we said, well, we need to be able to observe what's going on. And so, in fact, we have worked with our group, our, our IUSE group out in the Northwest and our Pacific Marine Environmental Lab of NOAA and come up with sensors where we can actually sense the water. And they talk about bringing in good water or bad water because we actually have, you can't replicate seawater very well. So they use the natural water. But with the observing system and we monitor the data for them, we have actually put up oyster pages, if you will, on our websites, and they monitor when they're going to um, take water in, which is good or, or bad. And uh, last year, they were back up to 80% production. Of course, the oysters on America's Pacific coast are the lucky ones. Acidification remains a huge problem elsewhere in the world. The Arctic Ocean is especially susceptible. So researchers are continuing to study it. And now they have a new helper, Aquarius. Here's Eric Lindstrom again. One of the things that uh, people studying ocean acidification want to know is the surface salinity because the dissolution of CO2 in the ocean is a function of salinity as well as temperature. And uh, so uh, we have a lot of interest from the ocean acidification scientists in our Aquarius measurements. And I've actually funded people to try and work on the CO2 cycle with the Aquarius data don't know that. So what we're trying to do from the observing perspective is get the instrumentation out there with these partnerships so that the scientists can actually understand what is going to happen. You know, the, the shells for the oysters, it's calcium. What's that acid going to do? And what's that then going to do to our beaches, to our coral reefs? So that research is just in its infancy. What we're hoping to do from the observing capacity is provide the data for those scientists to do the research. Studying the oceans normally provides plenty of work for scientists who are looking at long-term changes in factors such as salinity and pH. But occasionally one single event can require second-by-second -second analysis in real time. When the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010, for oceanographers it was all hands on deck. Deepwater Horizon shows just how far technology has come in oceanography. The US has a network of high-frequency radars which are just about to be hooked up with similar networks around the world. Plus, they have banks of automated unmanned vehicles, little subs that swim around making measurements. We were able to bring all of this capacity and technology in a coordinated fashion to a crisis. You can't just show up at a crisis. What we were able to do was to bring this high-frequency radar, which had, um, was in the Gulf, making sure that it was um, used by NOAA for their daily uh, tracking of where the oil was on the surface. We did have to understand the subsurface oil, which was kind of a new phenomena based with Deepwater Horizon. So we sent an individual down there from my office to coordinate the oceanographic sensors, most particularly the gliders. So seven of the nine gliders were brought to the um, community by this non-federal USIU's partnership with new sensors on, on board these gliders that could measure carbon dissolved oxygen matter or CDOM. And so what we were really able to do was understand the ocean state and where, most importantly, where the oil wasn't. So we could direct the high value assets, the ships, where the oil was for that cleanup. As Zdenka implies, this network of 128 high-frequency radar units, which IUS coordinates, is becoming more and more useful. And the data collected 
might be used in some surprising areas. We've had a lot of solar activity here recently, and because this is a signal that's going out through the atmosphere, there's another group that, through software that they've developed, they're actually monitoring this solar um, uh, activity through CODAR. Who knew? And then, you know, we talk about marine protected areas and what are the resources that we need to protect. Well, so we can monitor from where water comes to and from. And that doesn't sound like it's that important, but if you're looking at larval transport, which is what um, our ecosystems depend on, that food, we can kind of see where the water particles are moving and what areas of the world that we need to protect. There are many more examples of innovative ocean research going on around the world. In fact, we might be on the verge of a new era, according to some. Hi, I'm Scott McLean. I'm the director of ONSI. It's a center of excellence of commercialization research in uh, Victoria, Canada. As the nation with the longest coastline in the world, Canada pours money into ocean research. So in 2009, the government established ONSI to make sure the money also led to socioeconomic benefits through commercialization and outreach programs. As such, its director, Scott McLean, has somewhat of a bird's-eye view of ocean research. Ocean research, I'd say, is in a, in a transformative phase. Most of the 20th century, we were cruising around in ships taking measurements, and we get these tiny little snapshots of what was happening in the ocean. And really, we didn't, it didn't give us a very good picture. Uh, then with satellites, you get the broader, the broader picture, but what we lacked was the temporal scale. And now we're getting that with the newer technologies. And the key ones there are the cable observatories that provide very high data rates, video and acoustic. Uh, things allow us to visualize the environment, but also uh, AUVs and uh, remotely operated vehicles that can actually go out and replace ships. And that, that's really the trend, I think, in the future is less research ships, more autonomous vehicles, more cable observatories. So, AUVs, or automated unmanned vehicles, will be part of the future. I took a look around the London conference and came across one such little robot. It looked to me like a torpedo, broken apart with its guts spilled across the table. I'm here in the busy exhibition hall at Oceanology International and I've just met Andy, who graduated from Cambridge but is still involved in a project that Cambridge University is doing at the moment. Andy, tell us what this instrument that I'm looking at on your table is. So this is the start of our new AUV, which is going to be called Barracuda. It's going to be a shallow water AUV for operation up to about 80 metres um, with a number of sensors on it. So we're going to have a forward-facing camera, upward-facing camera and downward-facing camera and a multi-beam sonar, which has kindly been provided by TriTech. And it's also got a vector thrust configuration, which means that we can move in five axes. What are the applications for this kind of machine? So the machine that you're looking at here is, is designed for shallow water. So that can include environmental surveys, um, pipeline surveys, anything, you know, shallow water where you want to look at something over a long stretch or, or over a long distance, basically. Do you work with any oceanographers or ocean scientists who actually tell you what they need from an AUV? Yeah, there's various departments in Cambridge that have uses for AUVs. So one is the Scott Polar Institute. We've spoken to them several times. And then we've also got 
university advisor from the applied mathematics department who works in studying the oceans and studying ice caps. So one of our applications is going to be to study the Arctic ice and how it changes over time. Such adventurous research projects are, of course, connected to what many scientists describe as the biggest problem of our time, climate change. I ask Scott whether we're joining the dots as well as drawing the arrows. We all do those hydrology models at school, at least I remember drawing them, with all the arrows going up and the arrows coming down. And yet climate change and climate science it seems at the moment, from the public's point of view, I think, to focus on the atmosphere, really. Do you think that the oceans are connected in the public's mind enough to what's going on in the climate? No, I don't think in the public's mind there's a, there's a good connection there. Of course, there's a very significant connection. And he thinks it's because we haven't been very good at measuring CO2 in the ocean. Zdenka and her crew may have saved the oysters from acidification, but there's still a long way to go. The problem we've had uh, in the past is that we can measure CO2 in the, in the atmosphere quite well. We measure CO2 in the, uh, in the ocean fairly well. What we can't do is measure the, the uh, result of that in terms of the pH of the water. And that's, that's critical. So measuring uh, technology for measuring things for ocean acidification has been very difficult. There's new technologies becoming available, and that's really going to show what the, the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere is doing to the oceans, because it's, it's going to radically change things. And plenty of research projects are planned. Although NASA's Eric Lindstrom used to be an ocean-going scientist, today he rides a desk. But in September, he'll be back on the bridge on an expedition, and it's to do with salinity. Now we have a, a research program in the Atlantic uh, starting in September uh, 2012 and extending for a year. So we're doing a salt budget in the middle of what is the saltiest place in the open ocean to understand how it gets to be salty, how the uh, 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 there's a water mass that's formed there with, from the salty warm waters. So uh, we'll spend uh, about 35 days at sea deploying a sensor web of various kinds of salinity measurements. We have gliders and profiling floats and surface drifters and uh, moored current meters. And what will be your job on this expedition? My job will be your job, Adam. I get to be the blogger on the ship. So, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of out of uh, practice with all the technical aspects of the hardware, but I am uh, pretty good at doing all the different jobs on the ship. So I thought maybe the, the, in this day, everybody wants to know what's going on out on the ship. We have an internet connection. So I can write every day, take pictures every day, and send all this information back. And uh, NASA.gov has an awesome uh, PR machine, and they've all volunteered to help me get the word out. What an adventure that will be. We'll have to stay tuned for Eric's updates, but in the meantime, when your taste buds enjoy fish and chips with a dash of salt, you can think about how important salinity in the ocean is and how Aquarius is circling above us to taste it. Don't forget you can read the full transcript, find useful links and hear more podcasts from the Science and Environment faculty at podacademy.org or subscribe via iTunes. Ah, damn seagull took my chip.